Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, what does it mean to be a modern warrior? First off, the elephant in the room. Warrior isn't a dirty word. A warrior is mindful. They seek excellence and have learned to control their aggression. It's about understanding leadership, developing individual resilience, and seeking consistent human optimization. Remember, lifting heavy isn't dangerous. Being weak is dangerous. Fortune favors the brave, and you're never given more than you can handle. This, then, is the Warrior You podcast. All call signs. Ready, ready, ready. Let's roll! This week on the Warrior You podcast, I'm interviewing Dr. Mike Allen, who is a transformational leadership expert who focuses on aligning people with purpose to achieve exceptional outcomes. As the director of MLQ+, which is a leadership consultancy in Melbourne, Mike specializes in the development of leaders and leadership culture across you know many industries, including banking, aviation and also government. He blends his practical commercial experience with his academic knowledge to help people unleash their full potential. To add to this, Mike is recognised as one of the world's top proponents of the full range of leadership model, which focuses on the behaviours of leaders within various work environments. I'm sure you'll agree that Mike's experience makes him the ideal contribution to today's topic of defining good leadership. And I'm particularly interested in Mike's work in developing the 36 transformational leadership behaviours that help people achieve effectiveness, effort and satisfaction. The three outcomes that have been proven to produce outstanding leaders. uh, Effectiveness, effort and satisfaction. I'm eager to find out more about the practicalities of leadership. So who better to learn from than Dr. Mike Allen himself? And we discuss empathy and sympathy and the differences between the two of those, which was really surprising to me. Welcome, Mike Allen. Where does today's podcast find you? I'm uh, based in Brisbane at the moment. 
which is quite pleasant because we're like 23 degrees and the sun's shining. It's stopped raining. But as you might have picked up from my accent, I'm originally from the UK. So um, anytime the sun shines, I'm happy. <laughs> so you came here uh, as a sea change? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, uh, my uh, son was in his early teens, wanted to train as a triathlete. Uh, my wife's Australian. Uh, so we moved from the UK to Australia because they have the best triathletes in the world. And uh, he trained over here. And so we stayed. And so, Mike, what's your background? You're a doctor, but how does that all work? How, what's your background? What's your academic okay. sort of credentials, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, background, uh, academic, academically, yeah, Dr. Mike Allen. I'm an organisational psychologist, so I specialise in uh, psychology in organisations. Um, I did my degrees in the UK, so I went to the Open University because I was working full-time when I did my first degree uh, in psychology. Then went to Nottingham University, a heavily empiricist university. <laughs> so they like stats and numbers, which I happen to be crap at. Um, <laughs> Uh, so that was a bit of a challenge for me. Um, so I did that uh, while I was still working full time. And then I was very fortunate that the organisation I worked for at the time wanted me to do a particular piece of work, which I said, well, I think that's like a doctorate level, PhD. And they said, well, I you better do that as well. Um, and so I went to London University, East London University, to do my doctorate in organisational psychology. So I started my sort of academic field in my um, early 40s. Until then, I was um, working in aviation uh, for British Airways. Yeah, right. But my first degree is in equine science. Of course. So I, I used to ride horses, worked for a year, or should I say was um, in command for a year at the Blues and Royals in the UK. We are mounted artillery, so they have a mounted division and a tank division. I looked after the uh, mounted division. I decided the army wasn't quite for me um, at the time. I was very young, but, um, and then went to work for British Airways. So I worked for British Airways for 23 years, which mm. is when I went back into psychology. And so that's my nice background. It's fair to say that you've spent your lifetime sort of in and around leaders and looking at leadership and you probably love it as much as I do. So it's, yeah. it's not a bad not a bad little, you know, meeting between the two of us. And I'm going to ask you a lot of the same questions, I guess, that I ask a lot of people. And, and I'm, I'm going to ask you questions around what we currently use in, in, in my business um, with our clients. But those the first one straight off the bat is, would you be able to define for the listening audience, you know, what is good leadership? Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is, most probably, if you ask somebody what a good leader is, they'd be able to tell you what good is and what not so good is, but actually defining it from a statistical point of view or an evidence-based point of view. As a psychologist, that's what I'm always interested in. Where's the science? Where's the evidence? Where's the research that backs this up? Yeah, going, I don't know, going out into the middle of the forest and banging bongo drums with a whole load of other leaders uh, might make you feel good um, and might help you generate good relationships with other leaders, but does it actually get a result? And what is that result? Um, is a whole other ballgame. So I'm always interested in what the numbers say, what the data says. The evidence tells us that whenever you to ask anybody about leadership, they, they always talk about three things. They, leaders get more out of their people. So good leaders get more out of their leaders than, than poor leaders. So they get extra discretionary effort. I'll do it for this leader, whereas I wouldn't do it for that one. So they get more out of their people. So extra discretionary effort. Their people really know what they should be doing and what they shouldn't be doing. So they're much more effective 
uh, the people who they lead are really clear about when they're doing a good job and when they're not doing such a good job and when they're not doing such a good job, what they do about that to become better at whatever it is that they're doing. And the last one is they like working for that leader. So often called satisfaction, um, there's various versions of it, but basically they're satisfied. I like working for this person. So quite often you'll hear people say, oh, I wouldn't do it for this organisation, X, Y, Z organisation, but I'll do it for you. Well, actually the leader is employed by the organisation to get the individual to do that. And that's where this satisfaction comes through and it pays dividends. So leaders are always trying to do three things. They're trying to get extra discretionary effort. So sometimes you can call it productivity, but more out of people than, they, than, than a poor leader. They're always trying... Uh, to make sure that people are clear about what they should be doing and what they shouldn't be doing. And they're always trying to keep people happy in their job. That's uh, those that, are the three things. Yeah, three those, those three things are really, are really powerful. And, you know, far be it for me to say this to you, but you nailed it. Um, so would you have a, a, a specific definition that you would use to explain to a group, leadership is blah, you know? Um, in essence... No, I, I would never go leadership is about this because leadership is much more complex than that. It's not one individual thing. I spend a lot of my life saying, no, that's not leadership, that's management. <laughs> um, and there are two different things. So uh, particularly in organisations, but de- uh, dealing with executives and would-be leaders, I spend a lot of time going, what's management, what's leadership and what's the difference but more out of it, I can sort of say, well, there are most probably, you know, um, and this is where the full range leadership model, model leadership that I sort of advocate and have done a lot of my work behind comes out and it goes, well, actually, there are nine sort of factors to leadership. And when you distill it all down, do these nine factors, if you do them in the right way, give you these three outcomes. And so I'm always looking at, well, what gives us these three outcomes? If whatever you're doing doesn't in some way contribute to one of these three outcomes why are you doing it because if you're employed as a leader you're supposed to be trying to get these three outcomes for your organization or the group or whatever else that you're doing so why would you not be doing something that contributes to those and where does that what you're doing fit into one of those nine factors for me there are these nine factors yeah can you do you want to elaborate on those now yeah, um, the, the model was created, uh, the full-range leadership model was cre- created by Basson Avolio back in the early 90s, which is most probably when I really became interested in leadership because I was struggling as a leader myself to go, how does this all fit together? Because people talk about emotional intelligence, they talk about um, visioning, they talk about storytelling, uh, they talk about coaching people and everything else. And I go, yeah, get that, but how does it all fit together? And Bassanabolio came up with this model, um, which goes, well, these nine factors all feed into these three outcomes. So if you do these nine things, five of them are what we know as transformational behaviours. So um, this way is uh, trust is one factor. Um, integrity, so acting with integrity. Uh, Inspiring others, so visioning, stuff like that. Uh, Innovative thinking, so encouraging people to think innovatively. So you don't have to be innovative yourself as a leader. You just need to encourage the people you're with to be so. And then the fifth factor is coaching and supporting. Then 
There are two transactional, which are the more conventional ones, which is one, um, you need to reward people um, and reward them sufficiently. And then the second one in the transactional is you need to monitor mistakes. So you need to be looking at poor performance and knowing how to manage and deal with that. And then there are two sort of what are called passive avoidant behaviors. So if you're demonstrating them, they will negate the transformational and the transactional. And if you're minimizing the passive avoidant as much as possible, they enhance the transformational and the transactional behaviors. And those are really, the easiest way to describe them is, is you spend all your time fighting fires. So you're running from one crisis to another. You don't get much time doing the transformational or transactional stuff. Yeah. Um, and if doesn't matter how good you are, if people can't get hold of you, so you avoid getting involved um, in issues or problems or everything else, or people can't get hold of you, so you don't respond to emails and things like that, um, uh, you negate all the transformation transactional stuff you've done. So those are the sort of nine factors um, that go. And so equally you look and go, well, what behaviours fit into those nine? And if you're demonstrating those nine, you get those three outcomes. And so all the time, I went from sort of doing ad hoc things to very quickly, once I've got the model in my head as a leader, going, oh, okay, now I know where all this fits. Actually, I'm doing these things to get this outcome. Got it. And yeah. then what I started to see was people responding to that. And actually people going, how do you do this? And I was like, well, all I do is I've got this model and I go, I need to be doing these nine things and I'll get these outcomes. Yeah. What are the three outcomes again? Sorry, Mike. The, uh, the extra discretionary effort, right. effectiveness, so how clear are people about what they should and shouldn't be doing. So that's where the transactional comes in quite strongly. So right. you need to reward people, say you're doing a great job, but equally you need to manage poor performance. You don't just ignore it. Um, because if you ignore it, it just you, you, you don't win either way. And so that effectiveness becomes really key. And also this satisfaction. People like working for you because, you know, I don't know about you, but if you're seeing somebody who's not doing a particularly good job and the leader doesn't deal with it, you're not exactly enamored with the leader because you're like, hang on, I'm working my guts out here, not getting rewarded. And this guy over here is doing nothing. Nothing's happening. Yeah. I'm picking up his work, clearing up his mess, mm. and nobody's dealing with it. The industrious so the idiot. Lead, yeah. Yeah. So as the leader, you have to do both. And so this model allows you to go, oh, okay, got it. So yeah. what you get is those three outcomes all the time. Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, I can't help but feel your explanation of leadership before, it really does sort of go towards, you know, Simon Sinek. You know, I say this to people like yourself and we all, and myself and others, and we all roll our eyes like, oh, the pop culture <laughs> reductionist theory. But his, and I think he stole it from Eisenhower, to be fair, but... His defini definition of leadership is, you know, to compel someone to do what you want them to do because they want to do it. It sounds a lot simpler than what it is at first yeah. sort of pass. But I can see how your sort of, um, you know, the, the nine sort of areas and then the three outcomes definitely produces that. Um, that well, well is, is it building a fan base? I'll ask you, Mike, is it, are we building a fan base as a leader or is that too reductionist? I think, I think if you say that the fan base is, is because I admire this person, I would like to be like them, uh, then no. You know, um, it's funny, I listened to your podcast um, and read some stuff on Churchill the other day, and my birthday is exactly the same day. 
as Winston Churchill. So really, a, since a kid, I've been interested in him as a leader. Uh, not always popular. Um, and True. certainly not popular before he was voted in, you know, um, as leader um, during the war. But post-war, even when people went, we no longer want you as our leader, you were a great wartime leader, but are you the right leader to lead us out of this into the future? No, we don't necessarily think so. Yeah. But to see what happened when he died and his funeral and how he was revered and what people measured him by goes, yeah, actually, is it populist? I'm not sure, because you're not always popular if you're a good leader. Yeah, you just have to make decisions yeah. that are difficult. Yeah, there's a beautiful theory around um, leaders don't create history, the history creates the, the leader. And yeah. and all of for all of Churchill's failings, and there was a lot, and he, he did have a yeah. broken heart for the millions of people that he, he led to their demise, yeah. Um, he learned a lot of lessons as well. And, and it's almost, I would almost go so far as to say that, and I don't want to talk flippantly of this, but of the people who died because of his bad planning during uh, the um, Gallipoli sort of campaign and beyond, a lot of them were sacrificed for the ultimate in World War II ability for him to learn from those mistakes and compel the might of the United Kingdom, which wouldn't have been compelled any other way and also brought yeah. America into the war and so on and so forth. But yeah, he, he really was a product of the time of history and not so much his own ability, but his ability to step up when it counted. And that's one of the things that I say to many young leaders, you know, like, Learn your craft now because you never know when you may have to step up and actually use it for real. And I mean, I mean, for real. Yeah. I think the other thing was that he was a sort of a product in part of his sort of background, his history and his schooling and everything else. Um, and it's interesting to read, you know, his, his biographies where it, they talk about the amount of time. He used to be quite an emotional individual. He would tear up. Um, he obviously had a wicked sense of humour uh, to go with that. So he was a keen observer of people because humour needs ob good observation skills. The level of emotion, he was quite comfortable with his emotions. He would actually cry openly, um, which was very unusual for a man of um, his age and also his station in life. Yeah. And it was this um, level of self-awareness uh, he knew what he was good at. He also knew what he was not so good at. And he was prepared to learn. So I'm not very good at this. I need to get better at it. Yeah. Um, and it's that, but young leaders in particular, um, I think this level of self-awareness and self-reflection. So what did I learn from that? So when things go well, what did I learn? What worked really well? How do I do that again? But when things go badly and you make a mistake, is go, what did I learn from that? Yeah. Uh, what would I change? What would I do differently? And how would I do that? Brilliant. And if leaders are not in that position, so they're constantly not looking at themselves and going, so what would I do differently? What have I learned? Well, how does this look? How does this appear? Yeah. Is that what I want to achieve? They're never going to advance. I love it. This is what, yeah, no, it's, it's a constant true. learning. Yeah, no, I don't you're think right. you ever stop. Yeah, no, Mike, and I, I've got, I got a prop here. So um, this, oh, yeah. I wrote this book, yeah. The Commando Way, and, and the thing is, what, what I noticed at the end of it, 
and and a couple of people have, have had some jokes with me like, oh, you know, it's just all the things you've ever failed at. Well, actually, I feel like leadership is a constant reflection of what worked and what didn't work. And it, I just yeah. so happen to have encapsulated that in, in that book. Um, and now you're you're a, an organisational psychologist, um, you know, a, a, an academic by background to get to that point. I see myself as a, a leadership theorist that is i study people like you so you study Mm -hmm. you study you know you study the theories i study you and what i've noticed in the last uh six well year but six months in particular and looking forward into the future the next two to five years we are at a very very interesting juncture in leadership and although leadership has been studied for millennia it's really only been studied you know in the last 50 years with any real vigor um, and then after the industrial revolution, and then into the war period, and then and then you know uh, you know scale, but now we're at this point where it's changing. There's something in the air. There's something distinctly different about where we're going with leadership at the moment. We're seeing it in cultural change across governments. We're seeing it in the Me Too movement. We're seeing it in the lexicon that we use around things like. Um, white privilege and 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 other stuff that's rubbish, I might say, but some of it is actually um, is actually pertinent. Now, now, interestingly, one thing that keeps coming up from academics and people like yourself who who then have, have then moved from academia into into business, as as I have, is this word empathy. It's just come out of nowhere and it's like this superpower of leadership that we didn't know existed. I'm looking at all these old leaders and they're like, no, no, you don't need that rubbish. And then I'm looking at these new leaders and they're, and they're these new, this new era and they're all like, this is the first thing we lead with. I'd love your thoughts, Mike, on, on empathy and its place. Yeah, I would temper some of this with, I think that people sometimes display empathy without knowing what it is. Um, and so sometimes when you say to them empathy, they think about um, something called sympathy, which is not the same thing. And then on the other side, they think that listening to somebody and trying to understand their point of view is exactly that. All I'm trying to do is listen to what you're saying and understand your point of view so I can get a handle on it and argue my point of view or whatever. But actually, empathy is exactly that understanding somebody else's point of view, even if you don't agree with it. In fact, you might be find what they're talking about abhorrent, but I understand how you might think that. And so yeah. this notion of empathy has always been out there. Some leaders naturally do it. They naturally listen to people and go, I don't know about you, but my experience in the military was that as an officer, quite often uh, the sergeant or... The staff sergeant would say, uh, excuse me, sir, I'm not sure you really want to do that. Um, and you'd be like, well, why? And the staff sergeant, well, well, you won't know this, sir, but previously, blah, 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 blah. And you go, oh, okay, thanks for that. And you change your point. That was listening to somebody else's point of view and understanding why they don't agree with you. And then going, actually, that's some really good advice. Actually, I might alter how I'm going to present this or what I'm going to say now into a, into a different language, a different tone. But that's viewed as empathy. And the guy that you're talking to goes, he actually listened and paid attention to me and acknowledged that, you know, what I had to say was of value. And so I don't necessarily think it's new. I just think that we've stuck a label on it and suddenly there is this notion that because we allow people to talk, 
so we consult doesn't mean to say we have to listen right and actually what you're seeing is this movement of no no we want to talk and we want you to really listen and understand what we're saying you are listening but you're not understanding and so we've tagged it with this thing called empathy. I, I agree that I think it is a critical skill for leaders. Some leaders do it naturally. Other leaders have to learn. And I've actually worked and coached leaders who have zero empathy. I've actually coached a leader who's not able to demonstrate empathy. So there was a cognitive problem for that individual. And they were not physically, so their brain was not able to understand the notion That's of fascinating, empathy. yeah. So you quite often see it amongst particular Was that person effective? Actually, as a leader, uh, they've been pretty successful in what they've done. Uh, it does take a lot of energy and effort for that individual to learn a lot of strategies and techniques to, one, think, oh, I've got to listen to what this person's saying, and then how do I acknowledge that I've heard what they've said and take notice right. of what they said. So that we had to create strategies in order for that to happen. Because this person's brain wasn't able to really go, I need to understand your point of view. Yeah. Um, so actually, you know, listening listening was a function as opposed to actually trying to achieve anything. I, I guess to go back to to my what was a point, I'll, I'll then reframe that and ask a question, you know, Mike. Yeah. Um, are we at a juncture with of leadership am i witnessing leadership changing or are we or is it something completely different uh, i personally i don't believe that we're seeing leadership change what i think we're seeing is a cultural movement towards you're not listening so leaders I hate to say it, but, you know, we, we've got them here in Australia. They're very good at standing in front of a microphone and saying an awful lot of words. Yeah. But when you analyse it, you go, what did they just say? Yeah. Absolutely nothing. Mate, I'm, I cannot agree with you more about that. I'm, I mean, I come from a, a liberal family. You know, I'm a, I've been a liberal voter my whole life. I've never been so let down by by watching the conservative movement in Australia and how tone deaf they are. Especially the, the current, oh, sorry, especially the current prime minister. I just, I find him. I've never not liked a liberal prime minister. Like, I, like John Howard was was my hero, you know. But I sit yeah. there and watch, you know, Morrison now, and I'm, what are you saying? But it's not just his side of the politics either, or, or, or with leaders in politics. Then I then I watch the other side just arguing for the, for the sake of arguing. Yeah. And it's killing me. And I really want someone to stand up for once and just go, right, let's, you know, if they've got good ideas, let's, let's embrace it. Let's say how great yeah. they are and let's support it. If they're not great ideas, then let's frame a reason why we could do better and give an, an alternative. But in Australia, we just got this fighting and bickering and garbage. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
but uh, you know, I, I think it's the world over. We're looking yeah. at the you know the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, you know, you know, for, for, for everything that's going on, you know, here in Australia, but also worldwide about uh, the rights for women and you know domestic violence, all these things. Is we've been saying this. You're telling us you're listening, but you're not actually doing it. Listening. Yeah. Well, the thing is that. <laughs> Rather than going, we're listening, yeah. uh, and then you see some action, yeah. which actually goes, oh, now they're beginning to understand what we're talking yeah. about. Now we're seeing. What you're seeing is we're listening, we're listening, we're listening, we're consulting, we've set up these forums, we're, we're listening. You've got all these movements, you know, shouting from the rooftops, and the politicians go, we're listening. But you don't see any action. Mm. So therefore, people think, you don't understand. Yeah. No, In yeah. reality, they're not listening. No, They're just going. Yeah. We need to look like we're listening to get re-elected. To get re-elected. So their, actually, their business is to be elected. That's their business. It's not really a govern. It's just to win another election. Now, for me, it's so yeah. simple that the whole um, equity pay gap, you know, and the like. For Christ's sake, someone just stand up and go, okay, from now on, I'm passing a law, and everyone will be paid commensurate to the position they're in, regardless of what sex they are. And if they're not found, then we'll get the ACCC to fine you. Like, just pass that bloody law and stop saying yeah. it's going to take 50 to 100 years. What a load of garbage. <laughs> you know, like... I'm like, I am... I, am, I, li- I listen to leaders and particularly some of the political leaders, but also leaders and organisations, and I'm always waiting for the but. Yeah. Uh, and the moment I hear it, I go, here we go. Whereas I'm looking, however, there are some issues that we might need to clear up. Even their language... The language that they use is the language of yeah, excuse. No, I agree. Let, um, let, let me just say this. You know, yeah. like as, as minute I hear that, I'm like, I want to punch you in the head. Yeah. Because I know, um, I mean, I've had media training. I know what you're doing. You're drawing yeah. out the interview so you don't have to answer the questions yeah. and you're saying what needs to be said in line with party policy from this morning when you all sat around yeah. talking about the messaging yeah. you wanted to get across to be re-elected. Yeah. yeah. And, bad leadership. And, and what is really is the, the listener, the voter, whoever it is, people like you and me, go, well, I don't really know what's going on here. I, yeah. so I don't really know what I'm voting for. However, I don't know what I'm voting for over here and over yeah. here. And so you get this apathy. Whereas when somebody goes, no, that is not going to happen. We are not going to change the law regarding X, Y, and Z. That's our policy, and that's what we were elected on. You're like, got it. Oh, it was, it's been really interesting to see. And this, this clarity, sorry, yeah. that I always talk about in leadership, is that this ability to be comfortable with standing out in front, and I, I use this term that's because of a video that's out there on um I think it's on YouTube or something. And it's called The Lone Nut on the Hill. And it's uh, this guy weirdly dancing and how he gets everybody to follow him. Um, and it's, I always go, how, how, if you're going to be a leader, you're going to have to stand on that hill with everybody looking at you and going, what a wanker. Yeah. And but, but because you believe that this is the right thing to do. Yeah. And then suddenly you'll turn around and find 50 people behind you going, yeah, I'm up for that. Right. And that's how you get a movement. But you have to have somebody out there to give the vision. You can't sit on the fence. Yeah. You can't, that, you can't stand on a hill but not dance. Yeah. yeah. And that, that comes from somebody mm. empathising, listening to all these women or listening to all the, the Black Lives Matter or listening to whatever else the issue is, and going, no, 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 that's what I believe in as well. I'm going to stand up and say, 
this is what I stand Great for. Great conversation. Whether that gets me elected or not elected is a whole different ballgame. Which is, which is really interesting, Mike, because I thought that Morrison had done that at one point. He stood up in Parliament and he gave... Christine Holgate, both barrels using, using yeah. right? And I thought, okay, well, he's made a stand. This might come back and bite him in the ass, but he's made a stand and said, if you're a publicly elected official, for, for what was actually pretty, pretty, yeah. you know, if you think about it, it's it's nothing compared to the, yeah. compared to what goes on in, you know, what's been going on in the halls yeah. of parliament. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Christine Holgate has now come out and said, you know what, having the Prime Minister of Australia weigh in without knowing all the facts was detrimental. This is going to be bad. And that was, well, it's terrible mm. leadership now, I believe, because he hasn't been able to double down on that position and say why he had that position. They're just trying to massage it and do... Oh, I'd love your thoughts on that. And also, it's leading me yeah. into the whole Trump leadership. Yeah, but I know we, we, this, this is not about politics, but it, we, yeah. they're, in our, they're in our face. We get to see them and we get, to, we get to witness leadership that probably isn't aligned with our values. Yeah, and... That most probably is where fundamentally I spend a lot of time working with leaders when they go, well, how do I lead? I go, well, what are your values? And they look at you completely blank um, a lot of the time to, oh, well, I think they're around and then you do the work. I think leaders who are very clear about what their values are, uh, I think that somebody like Biden in particular, because of the trauma he's been through in his life, is very clear about what his values are. And yeah. what he will stand for and what he won't stand for. Uh, what he'll support, what he won't support. What he'll say, what he won't say. Um, obviously, there's a level of how do I reconcile this yeah. with my values, given the leadership function that he's in. Yeah. Uh, but he's very clear. Whereas on the other side of the coin, you have somebody like, and this is the problem with populist leaders. Yeah. They go for what's popular, and then you're like, I'm not really sure what you stand for because that's popular now, but it won't be popular in a week's time, or right. it wasn't popular before and you were against it, now you're for it. I get it. How does that reconcile with your values? What are, who are you? Yeah. I'm following you. I need to get a handle on who you are. Yeah, I like and it. And so mm. leaders who can talk about their values and then are what you'd call congruent with yeah. those values, uh, it develops trust. Yeah. I found and trust I, is fundamental really, to leadership. I really found Steve Marshall to be like that. When, when Trent interviewed Steve Marshall, he was really clear about his values. Yeah. He was very clear about changing with the culture um, and, and answering the call, putting things in yeah. place. And I find <laughs> on the other side of the political spectrum here in Western Australia, I actually find the most conservative leader that we've had in a long time here in Western Australia is the current Labor, <laughs> you know, yeah. pre- Premier King McGowan. And he's the same. Yeah. He gives a clear, yeah. a clear example of what he believes in. You know, you're left, with, left in no doubt. Maybe it's his, his uh, you know, Defence Force training. But yeah. it definitely comes across as very clear, articulate, these are my values and this is where the state's going. And for those of you that don't know much about politics, that was tongue-in-cheek calling him conservative <laughs> when he's actually not. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, just a bit of a change of pace, I guess. Um, getting away from politics because I could talk about that for hours. That's what that's what my degree is in. So that's what you know, right. international relations, majoring in politics. But um, and maybe I don't know. Maybe if if people want to start giving me good reviews again on the podcast, maybe I'll go into politics. But um, <laughs> how do we, from your professional 
experience and, and the really successful business that you've had, how do we inspire someone who is at the end of their career and no longer loves leadership or no longer cares about the leadership position they're in? They're just going through the motions. So they might be, a, they could be, you know, maybe in the mining sector or in the you know, resources sector. They've done 35 years. They were, they were a hard thrusting charger when the culture was different. Now the culture's changed. They're, at, they're almost at retirement they're still in a leadership position, but they're just not. How would I go about getting that person to love it again for the last three, four, five years of their of their career? I think the question always comes back to the leader. So what I'm fascinated by is what makes leaders successful. And my experience is, well, there are sort of three things that always make leaders successful or people successful or what they do. But in the leadership area, I spend a lot of time working with leaders going, what is it you love? What is it that, you know, excites you? You know, and if they go, I like sacking people, you go, okay, so just tell me about that. What is it about it you like doing? Why? You know, I hate poor performers. I'm passionate about getting people out of the organization. And I've met somebody who, you know, they were upfront enough and trusted me enough to tell me that. And then you work in that area. So how do you get to do that? You know, so you've got four years left, you know, before you retire or you've got two years to go. How How do you do that? How do you get to do that every day because that's what will keep you going. So is there is there an area in the organization where they're like, look, we've got all these poor, poor, poor performers, we need to get them out. You're, this is a, an area you love working in. How are you going to do that? Why don't you leave that area? Why don't you go and say, look, you've got all these poor performers, I will focus for the next two years on getting these poor, poor, poor performers out of the organization or getting them up to the level that they need to be up at in order to carry on in the organisation. So it is quite often finding what people love. And when people have been doing it for quite a while, they'll tell you that they love this part of leadership and they're not quite so keen on that bit. Yeah. Most people will tell you they love doing the reward bit. They're not quite so good at doing the monitoring mistakes. Yeah, it's a really really stark um, sort of analogy that you've given there, a tough one. And and what it made me, and I get where you're going with this, what it made me realise is it's sort of like being a nutritionist. Whereas a coach, you walk up to a leader and you're not going to give them uh, a carte blanche diet based on everyone else's. You, you really, it yeah. is very individualized and you've got to get to the, I guess, the source code of what makes that leader who they are. Yeah. And so you spend a lot of time going right from the base about who are you? That's their values. What do they know about themselves? So we sort of have this framework where we go, okay, tell me about your values Tell me about your self-awareness. So have you done 360s? Have you done any sort of assessments? What's the feedback you're getting from people the are people they're, around you? They're terrible at self-awareness, aren't they? I noticed that. Yeah, yeah I noticed that with a group that I did. We... Um, we got the we got a we got a whole heap of post-it notes and we got them all to write down how they thought they were seen by others. Then they had to write on a post-it note how they saw each other person in the group, and then we charted them on a whiteboard and put theirs at the top and then everyone else's underneath, and they were always yeah. different. They were always different. Yeah, yeah we yeah. we've got no idea how people um, see us. Yeah, yeah, and so. For leaders to get feedback is a challenge. You know, quite often when you're doing something to say, so how did I do? People go, oh, really well. And you say, so what did I do so well? If you can get them into a position where they say, oh, when you were talking about this, I thought it was a bit boring or I don't think it was very interesting or I thought you were, you know, rabbiting on or whatever, I don't know. But 
to give you some developmental feedback is very difficult, particularly as a leader because of the power differential and everything else. So you've got to build up the trust. You've got to be in a position when somebody comes and said, look, Mike, you were a dick. Uh, every part of you goes, I want to just smack you in the face now because that's the first reaction. We all want to defend ourselves. We are naturally programmed to be defensive. Yeah. It reminds um, me. It reminds me of that Viktor Frankl quote: "Between stimulus and response is a space, and you own that space. Yeah. And choose, yeah. you know, and that's your power to choose. And I think leaders who respond to stimulus, uh, they they quite often are not as effective as other leaders. Um, yeah. So, Mike, how, how how important then is self control for a leader around around areas like? Um, or, or discipline around self-control and, you know, time management and being able to, well, lead yourself first, like, you know, sleep, diet, you know, resilience, that oh, sort of stuff. I mean, obviously, I, I didn't talk about this, but I, I have quite a sporting background, so I, I was an equestrian, so I, I rode for the British team. No um, way. Yeah, during the um, uh, 70s and early 80s. You're a big unit, um, though. You don't look like you're, you know. Like, I, you know, I wasn't. I was um, in those days. I was like 50, 55, 56 kilos. Just, just for the, just for the listeners, you know. I know you can't see Mike. I'm not saying he's a big unit, like a, like a big fatty bumbalata, but he's a, he's, you know, obviously goes to the gym. So I'm thinking a horse would be looking at you, going, "Oh, geez, here we go." Yeah, um, I've always been like six foot, but obviously um, that's been a disadvantage uh, for riding some horses. But I was always very light. Um, and so I, I kept my weight down. Uh, road horses competitively, three-day eventing in particular. Um, and then went to work uh, for an airline, British Airways. And while I was there, sort of decided I wanted to take on another challenge. So I changed sports and I took up luge. No way. And so went off to the United States, uh, was there having a go. Fortunately, got a scholarship from the Americans um, and lived in... Uh, upstate New York, Lake Placid, for a year, where they said, oh, you're 56 kilos, you really need to be about 90 to do this sport. Uh, Yeah, we can put lead weight on you and everything else, but it's dead weight. Uh, You need to be a lot bigger, a lot stronger to get the the sled moving and everything else. And so over a four-year period, I went from 56 kilos to 105. Really? What were you injecting? Uh, (laughs) uh, um, I was at the um, Olympic Training Centre where they would hand you a plate of food. Wow. And uh, you had to take the plate back. And then they would weigh whatever was left on it and give it to you in the next meal. Wow. Um, and there were eight meals a day. Jeez. So eating more is the se- I've always known yeah. that eating more is actually the secret. Yeah. Um, eating the right um, thing and a lot more of it. Yeah, true. Eating, eating a lot of food mm. and training in the right way, yes. exercising everything else. Um, yeah, you go through these sort of growth plateaus. So you put on size and muscle and then nothing happens for months and then suddenly you make another step. And, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, uh, it was great. I mean, having a scholarship at the Olympic Training Centre in yeah. upstate New York in the early 80s, I was fortunate that the company I worked for gave me time off and let me go and do it. Yeah. Um, and, but yeah, so eventually a race for the British team. Wow. I um, was in the British Olympic luge team. I'm not sure where we're going with that, but that's a cool story. But So my background with sport has always been really interesting. And that's a discipline um, that you talk about. Yeah, it's the discipline, the grit, the resilience that you need from that. Yeah. Um, but also in sport, you learn to fail. Yeah. So each time you get better, you go up a class yeah. or you compete against somebody who's better than you and you're going to lose. Wow, yeah. And so you spend a lot of time self, what do I need to do better? What do I need to change? What do I need to improve? So when it comes to leadership, I believe those skills are essential. 
So for me, they were fundamental. So when I was in leadership positions, it wasn't unusual for me to go, well, that didn't work, so I'll try something different. Yeah. Um, that worked. Why did it work? What did I do? How do I do it? How do I replicate that? Um, two, that I believe that leadership is incredibly demanding. Yeah, uh, me too. I think to be a good leader, you need to look after yourself. You need yeah. to look after your well-being. Uh, but you need to be fit and healthy yeah. because you are constantly giving yeah. to other people. Beautifully said. No, I, can't, I could not agree more. You know, one of the, one of the key foundational elements that we use in, in hindsight, leadership and resilience, is to explain to our clients that leadership is an energy transference. And if you are not exhausted as a leader, you're not doing it right because it is constantly giving. And, and I do think that resilience based on uh, good sleep, good diet, being physically fit is the only thing that sort of shockproofs you from everyday interactions with uh, team members and subordinates where you have to be on send, send, send the whole time. Um, yeah. And you can't lead from behind a computer. People who think they're leading no. from their, their, their office sending emails through Outlook, that's not leadership. That's not yeah. building – it's not building – you know, frames of reference with people. It's not building relationships that you can then... See, this is the thing. A lot of people don't understand that the relationship that I build right now, maybe it's through benevolent manipulation, maybe I'm, mm-hmm. you know, being kind and, and listening to you talk about golf and I can't stand it, I don't know, whatever it is. Yeah. That relationship pays dividends in eight months' time when you say, hey, I really need this deadline met on Friday night. You don't have to stay behind, but I'd really love you to do it. If you've put the work in... You know, eight months ago through this other yeah. stuff and then just consti- – and that's where the leadership, that's where the energy transference comes in. That's almost full circle to what we talk about. So how do yeah. you get this extra discretionary effort? I'll yeah. stay behind and hit your deadline for you. Yeah. How do you get that? You get that by developing the trust. How do you develop the trust? Happened well, there are really four facets in there, but equally one of them is about that level of self-awareness. I need yeah. to build trust with you in order to get – this extra discretionary effort. Is that, so the whole, is that authentic, Mike? If you're true to your values, it is authentic. Right. So quite often I will listen to somebody um, going on about golf yeah. and go, actually, um, somewhere along the line, once they've got to know me a bit and I've built the relationship, I go, actually, I don't know anything about golf. I'm not really that interested. It's one of those things that's always left me going, yeah. what are you doing to do that? And they go, really? Oh, you don't get upset. I understand how other people yeah. are fascinated by it and how do you get that ball in that hole 350 yeah. metres away and what the yeah. techniques are. I understand all that, but does it fill me with the desire to do it? No, it doesn't. But yeah. I can understand how it does for you. And so they can still talk so, to you about it, so then but you're you talk about it at a different level. Then you're trying, after that conversation, you're now trying to find something that maybe you have an equal care in. Or yeah, not. but equally, you, you've done some stuff which is about trust. I'm trusting you enough to tell you the truth here, that I'm not passionate about golf, huh. but I understand that you are. And there's the authenticity. So yeah, there's the authenticity. I'm being honest with you. Mm. Equally, they can say, oh, well, you know, you know, I don't get this and don't get that. So quite often they reciprocate by yeah. saying, yeah, but I know you're passionate about this. And, you know, to me that just sounds like, oh, and you go, yeah, I can understand that as well. So what is it when, um, what is it when a leader... I mean, I call it benevolent manipulation. It's probably not the right term, but what is it when a, a leader is talking to someone and they're like, oh, okay. And they're just, they're, they're manipulating themselves to listen to something else that they don't really care about to the point where they can build that relationship over time. Is there a name for yeah. that or not? 
Uh, well, I think... Or is it think just humanity? Is, yeah, I think when you're talking to somebody else, it doesn't matter how well you know them, there's always going to be something to talk about that you're not particularly interested in. Mm. Um, but there is an element of, I need to understand where this person's coming from. This is obviously important to this individual. It's not important to me. In fact, I don't even give a toss. Yeah. Uh, but it's obviously important to them. Oh, and so now my and value actually, is my value is now I will stand here yeah. and endure for, for the outcome. Well, yeah, it is. Can you reconcile it with your value? So my yeah. core value is fairness. Mm. So in that instance, I'd be going, is it fair to cut them off because I'm bored, mm. yet expect them to listen to me right. when they're bored? And so now no, that's, it's not. That's, Actually, how do I reconcile this with my values so that I'm still being authentic? Okay. I'm listening to you because I think it would be unfair not to. Yeah, it is complex. And so I'll reconcile it with my values. This is why when we work with leaders, we quite often go right back to the beginning, which is what are your values? Yeah. Because quite often if you can't reconcile it with your values, that's when you go, no, nah, this is not happening. That self-discipline then is I yeah. am going to listen to you. It is not fair if I cut you off. So I am going to yeah. sit here and I am not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not yeah. going to look into my inner six-year-old who just wants to throw the toys out of the pram and storm off. I'm going to sit here and listen to this. And that's yeah. the discipline and piece. To, um, yeah, and I'm going to try and understand it. Now, how do I do that? Right. There's all those micro skills that go along with it. How do I indicate that I'm listening? What does active listening look like? All that sort of stuff. So you then build all these skills on, but all the time you're going, I'm trying to build trust. And that trust feeds into how do I get this extra discretionary effort, effectiveness and satisfaction out right. of the individuals. So all the time you're going, this is where it matters up. But it starts way, way back at this level of self-awareness. Yeah. And actually, who am I? Yeah. Because if I can't reconcile this with who I am, it is going to show. I love it, Mike. So authenticity yeah. comes from values, not yeah. from good acting. I mean, yeah. you can be a really good actor. So really good actors are good actors because they do this thing called deep acting. They believe when they're acting, what they're saying is true. Right. So in their head, they're not acting. Right. In their head, it's real for them. Wow. That's, and that's called deep acting. Most people surface act, yeah. which is we pretend. So we smile even though we're going, you're a dickhead. <laughs> but guess what? The, the better leader is actually immersed in it. Yeah. yeah. I, can see, I can see that you're smiling, but your eyes are saying you're a dickhead. Yeah. How many times have you got on an aeroplane, been at a supermarket where they've gone, hi, how are you? Are you having a nice day? And you, you think, it's just words. Yeah. The actual I've words called people out for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The words and pictures don't match, don't, and that's where the authenticity don't is. Don't insult me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's where the lack of authenticity is. Yeah. Whereas this deep acting is, how do I reconcile this with who I am? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I can't, then don't say it. Don't do it, because you will get caught out. Somebody will spot it that the words and pictures don't match, which yeah. is quite often what we see on TV because it magnifies everything because it's so focused. Right. When politicians, they're not telling the truth or they're being economical with the truth. Or a certain, because, a certain because, person has a swami look on their face yeah. and then starts to act yeah. arrogant towards the reporters. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and you're just like, it's this level of authenticity, but it comes from reconciling it with your values. I could talk to you all day, Mike, but we, oh. don't, we don't have all day. Yep. Everything about this conversation is fantastic. Where can people find out more about you and more about the, the full range of leadership model and, and the business, et cetera? 
Yeah, um, they can just log on to um, MLQ Plus, which literally is that MLQ the initials uh, plus or one word dot com dot au, right. and that will take you to the MLQ Plus website where there's a whole lot of stuff around the full range leadership model, and also the MLQ Plus is the tool that we use to measure that model. So right. if organisations or individuals want to go, well, how do I stack up? Yeah, um, what am I good at? What am I not so good at? Uh, the, the tool actually allows you to do that from an organizational to an individual perspective. Great. Dr. Mike Allen, I want to thank you very much for being on the, the Warrior You podcast, talking about my favorite subject, which is leadership, and for giving us a great overview of, of defining good leadership without a pop culture definition, um, actually showing us how it's tangible and has traction. So thanks very much and enjoy the rest of your week. Great. Thanks, Bram. Thanks very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Righto. Thanks for listening, gang. If you'd like to find out about our parent company and the leadership and resilience training and workshops that they offer, please head to the Hindsight Leadership website, www.hindsightleadership.com. Hindsight Leadership, all one word. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, and remember, every dollar helps, you can do that through the podcast website at www.podcast.warrioru.com.au. There's a donation tab at the bottom of the main page and all donations are really appreciated. They keep the show on the road. And if you're interested in the Warrior U military preparation course, whether that's just the physical training component or the whole cultural training package, this can also be found through the podcast website, www.podcast.warrioru.com.au. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.